Hello, my name is Shane Snedeker, and I am here to host... Hi, I'm Earth. Have we met? On this podcast, I deliver some sanity in a world that is becoming more and more insane. Do you ever feel like things you're seeing and the world you're experiencing bear no resemblance to the world you once knew? Well, you're not alone. Join me on this podcast for a dose of stabilizing common sense and rationality. I will do my best to counterbalance the craziness in our lives by analyzing social and political issues, conducting respectful and open free speech dialogues, and trying to extend some lighthearted fun your way. I hope you'll be encouraged and return for more episodes. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Whatever time of day it is that you're listening, welcome to another episode of Hi, I'm Earth. Have we met? Uh, it's been a while, long, the longest stretch since I started this podcast. Uh, that There's a variety of reasons for that, uh, not the least of which is I'm currently in it, probably the most critical stretch of my professional career at MedCurity. I believe that I've explained in previous episodes the primary purpose that I was hired to MedCurity, but I will very, very briefly refresh those of you who aren't aware. I was a bartender for 15 years, and at a certain point, Carissa and I, my wife and I, realized that serving and bartending was not in our long-term vision. Also, with having six children, potentially four weddings to pay for, six college educations, we knew that it wasn't going to be the kind of income that was going to be sustainable to, to bring our dreams to fruition. And so I went back to school, got a math and computer science degree, and got hired at a, a startup here in Spokane. And I was hired to transition software development for the company called MedCurity in-house. As they began their business, they hired a third-party company to develop their software platform. I was hired to phase out that third-party company and transition all software development in-house for MedCurity. And the the deadline, the, the tentative goal is this June to have that company phased out. So I'm in the grind, the, the, the biggest, most um, intense part of my professional career, and I'm enjoying it, but that's much of the reason why you haven't had an episode um, for me in several weeks. Um, also, it's just been a busy time for Carissa and I and the kids. We have six children who are alphas. They all are strong personalities and very active. They all want to be involved in extracurricular activities. Our youngest daughters, Glory and Eden, have joined a, a soccer team. So they have their first soccer game this Saturday and Another update on my life is that I was able to fulfill a bucket list item by going to Hawaii. For as long as I can remember, since I was a little boy, Hawaii has intrigued me. It's, all, it's just always been some, somewhere I've wanted to go. And to make a long story short, I had planned a kind of the honeymoon that my wife and I didn't get to have when we got married. I had planned to take her to Hawaii and surprise her for our 10th wedding anniversary a couple years ago. I had gone so far as ordering the airline tickets and lodging, and then three weeks later, the entire world shut down due to COVID. So that trip was dashed. 
We did have vouchers from the airline that we didn't think we were going to be able to use, but at the last second in the 11th hour, Carissa found a four-day weekend that my that our kids had at school. We lined up a babysitter by committee situation, and we were able to take four nights and five days to go to Hawaii. Now, I do have to say, you know, my whole life I had been building up an expectation, an anticipation of what Hawaii would be like. And I feel like I had a really lofty vision and perception of of what it would be like. And I have to say that it completely exceeded my expectations. If you've never been to Hawaii, I highly recommend it. It was amazing. It was beyond anything that I had ever experienced. It was so beautiful, such such a paradise. And we had an amazing time. So, So for today, with it being Easter week, There's been a lot on my heart in the last few weeks, and I want to focus the episode today around the most important story that has ever been told, and that's the story of Jesus. And you know, we get that story from the Bible. There really is no parallel book to the Bible. Some people think that there's no errors in the Bible, and the doctrine of inerrancy truly relates to the original writings of the biblical authors like the actual parchments and scrolls that the authors who wrote the Bible physically wrote on. The doctrine of the Bible as the inerrant word of God stipulates that the original writings were the supernaturally dictated words of God, certainly throughout time, especially time before the printing press, when generating copies of ancient writings consisted of meticulously copying every jot and tittle scrupulously by hand. There have been slight inconsistencies that have risen in the text that we hold in our hand. One Bible scholar conducted a thorough investigation into all such inconsistencies and found that most involve numbers. For example, there's one passage in the Old Testament that says that a large wall fell and killed 27,000 men. Think about for a second how large a wall would have to be to kill 27,000 men. It would have to be taller than the original World Trade Centers. But in the Hebrew language that it was written in, the difference between 27 and 27,000 was a dot, which it is not crazy to consider the possibility that somewhere along the line of copies of the text being proliferated, the dot was missed by a scribe or fell off of the parchment paper. You know, it would certainly make more sense that a wall fell and killed 27 people rather than 27,000 people. And that is likely a more accurate representation of what was originally written in the original text. And a charitable consideration is to surmise that the original text had that dot in the number, and somewhere along the thousands of years, the dot was lost. But it is easy to see that even that is not a real deal-breaker kind of discrepancy. It's certainly not the kind of inconsistency that renders the narrative defective. And these are the kinds of errors we find when we inspect the slight inconsistencies in the modern copies of the Bible. But the scholar conducting the research discovered that all of the modern textual errors or inconsistencies in their totality relate to 50 total passages in the Bible. And if you compiled each one consecutively, it wouldn't comprise more than a full page of text. And none of the errors affect doctrinal issues or or hold any significant bearing on the underlying message of the Bible. Furthermore, when we're talking about ancient literature or pieces of writing from antiquity, we have 
more corroboration and verified original copies of the biblical text than any other piece of writing multiple times over. There's just no parallel. There isn't a piece of writing that comes anywhere close to the Bible. It's overwhelmingly legitimate and verified, and you can be more certain that the Bible that you hold in your hand is an accurate copy of the original writings of the authors than any piece of ancient writing in the history of the world. And it honestly, outside of divine intervention, doesn't really make sense. Think about it. We're talking about 40 different authors from three different continents, speaking three different languages, living over the course of 1,500 years. Even if these men were intentionally attempting to start a cult or a fake and hollow religion, how could they conspire to put together a religious document that would stand the test of time? How could they even do that, considering most of them didn't even know each other? It isn't possible. It just isn't possible. And yet the authors of the Bible penned the single greatest piece of writing ever created, the world's bestseller that has been translated into nearly every language and has radically transformed the entire world. You have 40 men literally living in various centuries, all perpetuating the same unified story. You read the Bible, and it is undeniable that it's the supernatural work of one author who wrote it via mere men. I just really don't think we fully realize how miraculous that book is. I know that I take it for granted. And there's so many amazing discoveries that are related to the Bible. The whole field of archaeology was born from biblical scholars who wanted to test the veracity of the biblical narrative. The Bible says that this culture lived here. Let's go dig in that area. And they would literally start uncovering artifacts that verified the biblical, biblical account. Furthermore, the biblical account has never been contradicted by an archaeological discovery. Not the least of these discoveries was the Dead Sea Scrolls, which was a series of ancient Old Testament writings dating to around 300 BC, so 300 bef years before Jesus. And they were found in caves near the Dead Sea. Imagine being the archaeologists and scientists making this discovery. I believe they discovered it in the late uh, 1900s. So you, you find these ancient scrolls in these caves, and with extreme care you begin examining them, only to discover that they are exact copies of the very Bible that we hold in our hands today. Within the Dead Sea Scrolls, there are portions of every single book of the Old Testament except the book of Esther, including an, an exact, complete copy of the book of Isaiah. The amazing thing about this is to up to that point in the, uh, the 20th century, the oldest original copies of the Bible dated to around 900 AD. So there was a 1,200 year gap in our records of the Old Testament text. 1,200 years and we discover these Dead Sea Scrolls that date to around 300 BC and they are exact copies of the biblical text. It really is a testament of the, the, the care and the piousness with which the scribes and the Jews treated the scriptures. The Dead Sea Scrolls predicted, you know, within the book of Isaiah is the prediction that the Messiah would be crucified. And that, you know, was literally written 300 years before the Roman Empire instituted crucifixion as a means of capital punishment. It's amazing. Furthermore, 
One of the ancient texts included the prophecy about the king riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. Several hundred years later, Jesus enters Jerusalem riding on a donkey to the adoration of the crowd who shouted, Hosanna, glory to the king of Israel. That was Palm Sunday, the anniversary of which was five days ago. One of the things I continue to be in awe of with the biblical narrative and the history of Israel is the way that God has created pictures through the history of Israel. For example, when Moses led Israel out of 400 years of slavery in Egypt, it required several miracles. You may remember that Moses had to carry out 10 plagues on the Egyptian people in order to finally convince the Pharaoh to let the people go. The final plague was the most severe because the Pharaoh had repeatedly hardened his heart and gone back on his word about letting the people go. And it took the 10th plague, which was the plague of the Passover, to finally provoke the Pharaoh to let the people go. With the Passover, Moses instructed the people to take a lamb, an unblemished lamb, into their homes and spend four days inspecting it to make sure that it was perfect without spot or blemish. And once they had confirmed that on the fifth day, they were instructed to kill the lamb for dinner and put part of the blood on the doorposts of their home. And in the middle of the night, any home in the land of Egypt that didn't have blood on the doorpost, the firstborn child would be would be dead by morning. And when that happened, it obviously was devastating for the Pharaoh and all of the people of Egypt. And he finally told Moses to take the Israelites out of Egypt. Well, Israel has been celebrating the Passover ever since. And on the 10th day of the first month of the Israel calendar, Families take a perfect lamb into their house and they spend four days inspecting it and making sure that it's unblemished. And then they sacrifice it and um, as a way of commemorating the Passover that led to Israel's escape from Egypt. And what's so amazing to me is that Jesus's death and resurrection literally happened during the month of Passover on the Israel calendar so that he became humanity's unblemished lamb. And rather than having to kill a lamb and put blood on the doorposts of our homes, when you accept him and what he did, his blood covers our hearts and we become covered from the punishment that our sins deserve. The Bible is full of pictures like that. And it's in this Easter season that I encourage you, friends, to really consider where you stand with Christ. Like, are you willing to stand with him? I think we're living in a day and an age that is railing against him. Jesus himself warned that the world would turn into an increasingly dark place in the end times. Jesus' disciples asked him, how will we know that we're living in the end times? Jesus responded, don't let anybody deceive you. A lot of people will come in my name claiming to be the Messiah, and will fool many people. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but don't be alarmed. These things have to happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these things are the beginning of birth pains. Those of you who are true to me will be handed over to be persecuted and even put to death and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. 
and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But those of you who stand firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. These words of Jesus are incredible and give us a picture into the times we're currently living in, I believe. My personal stance is that it is unquestionable that we are currently living in, at the very least, the beginning of the end. Jesus says two primary things will accompany the end times. Like, he is telling the church, when you see the following two things, you know that the end is drawing near. An apostasy, which is a great falling away or desertion from the faith, coupled with the ubiquitous preaching of the gospel to all nations. Well, would any of you be willing to argue that there isn't currently an incredibly rapid falling away from the Christian faith in the world? Also, it's undeniable that the gospel of Jesus Christ has reached every corner of the world. And with the spread of the internet, the phenomenon of the gospel message propagating to every corner of the earth is only expanding. Folks, when I read Matthew 24, I personally get the chills as I am struck with the realization that we are living in the very times that Jesus prophesied about. Some of you may disagree with me, and that's okay, but that's where I'm at. Intertwined within the apostasy and falling away that we're seeing in the world today is the growing spirit of the Antichrist all around us. We all see it. The increase of wickedness in the world is unquestionably advancing on the daily. We cannot stand in the gap and bear Yeshua's standard if we yield to become like the world around us. The only way to resist the spirit of the Antichrist is to hold fast to the truth, to go even harder after Christ and his word. As horrible as COVID and the insane cultural foundational shift that has resulted from COVID has been on the collective psyche of my family and so many others, I've discovered that it has really been a blessing in disguise. I think that it really woke me up to my own complacency. I've discovered in the last two years an authenticity in my spiritual walk with God that makes the whole history of my faith feel hollow. I've always believed in God and gone to church since I was about five years old, but I've never really taken my faith to the next level, if that makes sense. And I think COVID really kind of shook me it shook a lot of people, but for me, it was made me realize that I really needed to buckle down. And, you know, one of the things that I've always struggled with is prayer. I've never been good at praying. I've never developed any kind of consistency in praying to God, as well as reading the Bible. I love the Bible, but never really developed any consistency. And I recently made a commitment that rather than listen to music or any kind of podcast, when I drive to and from work, I spend those times in prayer. And it has dramatically changed my life. I still have a long way to go. And I still am, my mind wanders when I pray. Definitely not not a leader in the prayer department yet, but just putting in place an authentic, sincere effort 
to grow to to grow my relationship with God, I can't tell you how much of a difference it's made. And I also I have an hour lunch break uh, when I'm at work, and I'm gonna begin to take that time to read my Bible because again, I've never really had a a set organized routine reading Bible reading schedule, and it's so important. Um, I think everything that's happened in the world has really cemented that in my mind. So I encourage each of you to do what it takes in your own personal life to take your faith to that next serious level. And as I wrap up this episode, I have one more passage that really struck me that I want to share. It's from Isaiah chapter 59. Truth is nowhere to be found, and whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one and was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his arm achieved salvation for him, and his own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. According to what they have done, so will he repay wrath to his enemies and retribution to his foes. So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. My friends, the God of the universe is a God of love and grace and kindness, but make no mistake, he hates evil and will make no room for it. In the Old Testament, one of the archetypes of Satan was Baal, and Israel at various times struggled with worshiping and bowing down to Baal. I feel like I've had this revelation that Baal is a picture of the Antichrist, and Baal is all around us. The culture we currently are living in is desperate to pressure us to bow down to Baal, to denounce the rigidity of our faith in the Bible, and to agree with the LGBTQ pro-abortion wicked woke lies. I can literally feel it growing, feel the spirit of the Antichrist getting stronger and stronger in the world. And the temptation for us, for me, for anyone, is to live in the suburbs of Sodom, that we want to have our cake and eat it too. So many of us love Christ, but we want to play nice with the world around us and not make waves or cause issues with Baal. We don't have that luxury anymore, you guys. God wants people who will stand in the gap during this crazy time in the world, and not bow down to Baal. He is jealous for your love and your heart, and he will not tolerate those who sell out. As the enemy and the spirit of the Antichrist, not to mention eventually the actual Antichrist, comes into the world, like a flood, the spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. Will you be with him in this? I hope so. So as I close out, um, some of the things I shared about the Bible, 
I discovered an amazing series from one of my favorite Bible teachers, Ken Ortiz. He's the pastor of Calvary Chapel, Spokane. And uh, I'm going to link in the show notes an eight-part series on the veracity of the Bible. Uh, He goes into much greater depth than I did in this session. He talks about the Bible canon and the history, the historicity of how we came to hold how the Bible that we hold in our hands came to be. Really amazing things. Uh, for example, um, if you think about Homer's Iliad, I, I remember when I was in high school, I had to read Homer's Iliad. That is a piece of antiquity. So that is a book that was written, I can't remember when it's claimed to have originally been written or when Homer was living. It was a couple thousand years ago, I know that. But it is a piece of antiquity, and it is universally accepted to be authentic. So when we read the Iliad, written by Homer, historians accept it as the authentic work of the actual person, Homer, who lived in history. Well, what's amazing about that is the the oldest existing copy that we have of Homer's Iliad was the year 900 AD, and... There's nine copies in existence of the Iliad. And it is, like I said, accept, it's widely accepted as authentic. The Bible has over 25,000 copies. I'm going to say that again. The Bible has over 25,000 copies, handwritten copies from antiquity. So you can know with the utmost confidence that the Bible that you hold in your hands is an accurate copy of the actual words that the people who wrote them wrote. So I encourage you to check out the series that I link in the show notes uh, for more information like that. And happy Passover, my friends. He is risen. I love you all.